Welcome back to the Midwife Podcast. I am currently here in Chicago for a weekend of salsa dancing. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about salsa dancing the whole time, um, but I thought I could slip away from the dancing long enough to bring you two new episodes here on the podcast. Um, Rinya grew up in Chicago and is also here in the city, but unfortunately couldn't make it today. So her and I have talked and we've decided that we'll record some episodes together and some episodes only one of us will be hosting. So today you have me. Um, the episode today, we'll dive into topics like consent, language, and hospital birth. We have our first certified nurse midwife on the show, Sarah Statino. Sarah is a CNM and currently works at Almeda Health, OMG Women's Healthcare in Hinsdale, Illinois. She completed her bachelor's in nursing at Purdue Calmette University and later graduated from the University of Cincinnati with her um, master's in nursing and midwifery. Prior to becoming a midwife, Sarah gained experience as a labor and delivery nurse, doula, and home birth assistant. She worked and learned in a variety of birth settings, including birth centers, home births, and hospitals. She has also worked as a labor and delivery nurse in Elmhurst Memorial Hospital. Sarah, Sarah is an advocate for evidence-based care, client autonomy, and informed consent. She is passionate about respecting clients' choices, facilitating physiologic birth, and personal empowerment. Sarah has particular interest in providing trauma-informed care to survivors of sexual assault, as well as providing competent and respectful care to LGBTQ community. She lives in Dowers Grove with her husband, Nick, and their cat, Pumpkin. So, welcome to Sarah, Sarah Statina. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Um, Sarah's going to be talking with us today on our podcast, and we're just very much looking forward to hearing all you have to share about midwifery. Okay. Um, so let's get started with one of my favorite questions, which is, how did you become a midwife? What's that journey like? Yeah, so it started in um, nursing school. I was planning on being an ICU nurse, and I got to my final rotation, which was OB nursing, and uh, saw my first birth one quiet day in this really quiet hospital that didn't have a lot of births, and... Uh, it was my first birth. I was like 20 years old, very excited about it, um, and was blown away with how powerful this woman was. It was her fifth baby. She was doing things completely unmedicated, and um, I had never seen anything like the whole process, and I was standing in the corner crying, <laughs> and everyone around the woman, the nurses and the physician, were not kind of experiencing what I was experiencing. Um, I was just so impressed with her and the whole thing, and 
these birth workers were just kind of removed emotionally. And mm -hmm. I guess in some regard, now that I am a provider, I could understand some of that. But they were kind of almost annoyed with her. I remember at one point the physician was raising his voice and telling the patient that she wasn't pushing at all and that she wasn't doing a good job and that the baby should be here by now and kind of really wow. negative, yeah, negative, I guess, encouragement. Mm. <laughs> and um, I walked out of the room feeling like really strange. Like on one end, I saw this like really powerful, incredible thing that I had never even imagined um, at a tw as a 20 year old. And then on the other hand, I felt like I witnessed kind of like behavior that was unacceptable or like the maltreatment of a human, this mm -hmm. person. And at that point, I'd already been in nursing school for a while. I mean, I knew what holistic care was supposed to look like, and that didn't feel like holistic at all mm -hmm. or even respectful. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember debriefing with my amazing clinical instructor and kind of telling her what I was feeling. And she said, have you ever heard about midwives? And I didn't even know what that was. And she kind of opened my world to midwifery care. And when I learned about it, it just seemed like common sense. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand why common sense wasn't mainstream. Mm -hmm. Why was midwifery this obscure care model that I'd never heard about, even though I was two years into healthcare, learning about healthcare? Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of began my journey into fully immersing myself in the birth world and my path to midwifery six mm -hmm. years later. I'm a certified nurse midwife. Mm -hmm. And um, I try to make sure what happened in that birth room at the first birth I ever saw never happens mm -hmm. when I'm there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what a gift you're giving to all of those women to, to kind of be standing up against you know, the man that gets in the way of that feminine power in, in birth. Yeah, I feel like so a lot of power. Protector. Yeah, power mm -hmm. has been stripped away from women in so many different um, areas, but birth, definitely. And it's just such an innate, um, powerful experience that it's crazy that it's become mm -hmm. such a tool for disrespectful care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can you tell us a little bit about your journey to it sounds like the feminism kind of intertwined with your discovery yeah, of midwifery. Absolutely. And how you're just I mean your experience of understanding your own identity um has shaped maybe how you practice or how you understand midwifery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, so I definitely identify as a feminist now. Um mm -hmm. And just for context for those listening, I am a white woman, mm -hmm. and I practice in a predominantly affluent white suburb of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So my perspective comes from a place of immense privilege and limited experience in a lot of ways. But um, I have done a lot of kind of self-discovery through feminism and that journey really began when, when I started learning about midwifery and about birth work um, and these reoccurring themes about women um, kind of 
kept coming up in everything I was reading and and I kept like being like yeah that makes a lot of sense and oh yeah I agree with this and I was like okay maybe I'm a feminist <laughs> and I mean I didn't even hear that term or know anyone that identified as a feminist until I started connecting with the birth community that I was in mm-hmm. and um constantly challenging what it means to be a feminist, um, intersectionality, and really knowing that feminism doesn't only include women that identify as women or that it doesn't include just white women. Um, And so, I mean, I still have a lot to learn, and I'm trying to incorporate learning and and applying that knowledge in my care every day. and I'm grateful to the other midwives and birth workers that I've learned from who have a good grasp mm-hmm. on what it means to provide feminist care. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, what does that mean, like feminist care? I mean, I think it, to me, it means um, empowering the individual that you're giving care to or knowing that she or however she identifies. Um, can empower herself or themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm still working on my language inclusivity, as you can tell. But mm-hmm. I, um, one of my favorite um, sources for learning and expanding my bubble is the feminist midwife. Mm-hmm. It's a midwife here in Chicago. She has a blog. I recommend everyone, mm-hmm. all students that I work with, to um, read her work. And I really credit her to really. Mm-hmm you know, taking myself out of this little box of what I think is normal or what I think is common or whatever. I don't know what the right word would be, but, Mm -hmm. um, and so what it, what I've learned as being a feminist healthcare provider is one midwifery is kind of known as meeting women where they are, but, um, understanding that, whether you're providing gynecological care or you're providing pregnancy care, all of that care can be done in a really respectful way that's inclusive, that is um, sensitive to that individual and that you're not creating more trauma. Mm -hmm. You're providing a safe, empowering space for people to get health care. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about your work um, an interest in um, your work and interest in you know providing sexual you know women that have exper- experienced sexual assault or sexual abuse and sensitive care yeah um, as a midwife what does that look like and what are things that you do so surprisingly um, midwifery school didn't really go in depth in teaching how to provide sensitive... What did they talk about? I mean... And what do you wish they had? I mean, I wish they had talked about specific ways to provide that sensitive care. I mean, it mm-hmm. was covered in, like, you know, that you're going to encounter women who have experienced sexual assault, um, that it's so common, and they basically just made us aware of the statistical... Um, reality. Reality. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really bring up the most best approaches, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, that I would have liked. And I learned a lot from the Feminist Midwife blog, Mm -hmm. in fact, like how to do a respectful uh, vaginal exam and making sure that you're not causing more trauma. And Mm -hmm. um, I did a 
How do you do that? So it's all about consent and understanding that this woman's body is hers and that you are an invader in that body. And so first of all, making sure that the reason that you're invading her body is for a good purpose. So mm -hmm. if you're going to be gathering vital information from that exam, if it's going to be um, necessary. So for one example, um, you know, a routine pelvic exam used to be done at every gynae visit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't do that unless there's complaints or concerns or there's a valid reason for doing a pelvic exam. Um, there's no reason to invade someone's body unless you have good reason. <laughs> and even when you have good reason, you need to make sure that that individual uh, consents completely and that it's an ongoing consent process. So I usually start by uh, it, explaining to the client that I think a pelvic exam might be necessary in this situation and I provide my reasons why and what information I'd gather from that exam and if they are on board with that. And if they are, I talk to them about what that will be like. Um, I talk them through every step of the way and I usually start off before even touching them by saying, um, if at any point you're uncomfortable, um, you want me to stop moving my hand. So if I'm doing like a digital exam, if you want me to stop using my hand or moving my hand, just say stop. If you want me to take my hand out, say out. And then if they use those words, I'm doing the things that I promised that I would do. So mm -hmm. even if I haven't gotten the information that I needed yet. Mm -hmm. um, so you're giving them the power to stop the exam at any point, and then you're respecting their choice to stop that exam. Mm -hmm. um, also being sensitive of the female anatomy, um, that when you're doing a digital exam, oftentimes providers will place a thumb on the clitoris. Mm -hmm. That's really confusing for patients or clients. Why? Um, because the clitoris is a sexual organ. Well, like why do they put their thumb there? Um, just Bad steady? technique. Okay. <laughs> I don't see why you need to, but if you never learn uh, to be aware of where your thumb is being placed, mm -hmm. then you maybe you don't think mm -hmm. about it. But well, I mean, I know there are some textbooks that like don't actually have the clitoris. I I don't think it's textbooks, but there's like images of the images vulva where, with no clitoris. Exactly. Yeah. It's not labeled. They're just desexualized like, and exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think you have to remember, like, we're doing something that's as a provider, we're doing something that's not sexual, but you're yeah. dealing with sexual organs, and so you don't want to send confusing messages. And so the clitoris is highly sensitive and highly, um, you know, uh, prone to arousal, just like if, like a male's penis. So mm -hmm. if you're doing a digital exam and you're placing a thumb on the clitoris, you're doing something that's not sexual and kind of uncomfortable, but then you're also providing pressure on your major sex organ. Mm -hmm. And so um, just being aware, that's such, like, such a simple thing to change and just make sure that your thumb is not over the clitoris, making sure it's off to the side mm -hmm. um, and simple things like that. Also um, avoiding words like relax mm -hmm. or... Um, these are uh, this, this kind of plays into the um, being sensitive to women or individuals who've experienced sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, this is a word that they often hear when they're being raped or abused. 
It's just relax, just relax. Um, and so we don't want to recreate a triggering environment when there's a lot of things lined up to already put them in a kind of space that's triggering. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, instead of using the word relax, I'll just say, let's take a deep breath and soften everything. Or um, I'll say, you'll feel my touch here. And, um, and, and I always start by placing a hand on their inner thigh. You're not going to be touching their uh, labial directly right away. You want to kind of um, show them, I'm touching your thigh, and then do that. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna. I'm touching your labia, then do that. And you're always walking them through what you're doing and why you're doing it. If there's anything that you're seeing, kind of including them. Um, I know uh, Stephanie Tillman, the feminist midwife, has also said um, she will sometimes give her clients a mirror um, and let them participate in the exam. Also, they can even put their own speculums in. Um, mm -hmm. I've had clients who I will hold the speculum and the client will kind of reposition herself and um, onto the speculum so that it's comfortable for her and I'm not the one inserting it. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of different ways to be creative and, and individualize the care so that you're um, making it the most comfortable, brief, as brief as possible, and, um, and as least uh, invasive mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. One other good kind of way to, or simple change in practice for providers is to eliminate the use of stirrups. One, the word stirrups is just not ideal. If you have to use stirrups, like foot pedals is a better terminology, but um, stirrups, I don't even think there would ever be a need for stirrups unless there was some extenuating circumstance. In the clinic, I never use stirrups. I always use have my clients place their feet on the table mm -hmm. and I have a like a lower ledge where their feet are mm -hmm. and their bottoms kind of right on the ledge and that kind of provides them stability they have more control they can push their legs up and off of you know away from me if they needed they're not like floating in air um stirrups themselves is just a tool of um was created for convenience of providers there was no thought behind women's comfort or mm -hmm. how just embarrassing or disempowering it can be to be up in stirrups with your genitals mm -hmm. exposed to the room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I find that most of my clients are really happy when I tell them I don't use stirrups. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like having really sensitive care has a lot to do with communication. Mm -hmm. And being really clear about that, really, um, like, gentle and clear about what's going on. Do you, like, what do you do if clients maybe don't share that they've been abused or have come from that history? Or maybe they don't feel comfortable yeah. communicating. Like, what, what are ways that you... Um, well, one, I just, I just assume... I, I don't assume that everyone's been sexually assaulted, but I think if you're a healthcare provider for women and you do a full day of clinic, you are kidding yourself if you didn't have at least one or two women with a history of sexual assault come into your office that day. Um, and they might not have told you and they don't have to. Um, it's good to screen for it for everyone, but you're not always going to have someone who feels safe enough to tell you. And that's totally okay. 
And so my kind of approach is just to treat every exam, every client with the same sensitivity. It's kind of like standard precautions. Like you hear standard precautions for nursing. We wear gloves for everybody. Okay, we'll just treat everyone with sensitive, respectful care, and then you're not going to cause trauma. You're not going to trigger someone. You're not going to um, have someone walk away feeling like they just got assaulted. And that would, that's like what I try to avoid every single interaction is I want my patients, my clients to walk away feeling like they were respected, they were heard, that they had the most um, comfortable exam or interaction with me as possible, that they didn't feel judged, um, mm-hmm. and that there's like a understanding that I'm meeting them where they are, that I'm not expecting them to be something different or, or be somewhere else in their life journey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what are, um, I just had a question that totally flew right <laughs> out of my head. <laughs> um, I think also just yeah. understanding um, how it plays in pregnancy and birth, especially mm-hmm. for um, a provider should educate themselves on how a history of sexual assault, especially during childhood, can affect labor progress, mm-hmm. pushing, birth, everything. Wow. Mm. Um, and so it's helpful if you know that information, like if you know that that individual has a history of sexual assault, that you can kind of approach their labor and delivery management with that knowledge. But um, if you know kind of how, like the the patterns. So Penny Simpkin, who's a really famous doula, um, she runs a workshop for um, providers and doulas for caring for women with a history of childhood sexual abuse and how it plays into pregnancy and and labor. And that's a really great workshop. I would encourage everyone to take it if they could. Um, It talks a lot about patterns that you can see with, uh, you know, labor progression, settling, stopping, um, disassociation during labor because of just the the flashbacks and the triggering of their abuse Um, and just being aware of that as a provider Mm -hmm. you can kind of create a more safe space and be more in tune with what that person is experiencing Mm -hmm. and be more understanding of it kind of is an explanation maybe why things are mm-hmm. are not progressing normally mm-hmm. or maybe we need to try something else or maybe, you know, what there's a lot of different troubleshooting that midwives do in general and having that knowledge is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what would be the rundown if, you know, what would, yeah, what would be, what would you do if it seemed like someone's labor was stalling because of a past... So, abuse. so it just depends on, I mean, obviously it depends on the whole situation, but for example, I mean, some um, individuals may say that they, they don't want to experience any of the discomfort of labor because they are afraid that if they feel that, that same pressure of the baby coming down and out, it's going to remind them of the same sensations that they felt when they were being raped. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so they want an epidural from the get go. Okay, and that's totally, knowing that ahead of time, knowing that's a plan, like that she's evaluated that beforehand, and that's really, you know, 
good to know and you can kind of facilitate that. And then on the other hand, there's other individuals who might say like, no, I want, I've been disconnected from my body for so long um, because of this experience. I don't want to miss out on the labor and the birth of my child. Um, so I want to feel everything. And, and that might be really empowering for her and really, um, important and so helping her facilitate that mm -hmm. um as far as like labor progression goes sometimes it's as far it, it it's a change in in plan maybe what she thought she wanted to experience all of that discomfort now we're getting to the point where the baby's head is descending into the pelvis and she's feeling that pressure and maybe subconsciously or consciously she's has this tension because she's afraid you know fear mm -hmm. we know in general plays a huge role in labor progression and so working through that fear maybe during labor isn't the best time to do it and maybe it is it just really depends on the individual mm -hmm. um but just i mean midwives have tons of of tricks and sometimes it's as um as simple as just having a conversation and and giving them permission to be mm -hmm. um afraid and then to like work through that together and again you're you're creating a safe space and i think that's what i've been doing for my clients since I was a labor and delivery nurse you you're as a midwife you're the protector of that labor room whether it's in someone's home in a birth center or the hospital like you are the provider that makes sure that the lights are dim the energy in the room is positive and encouraging and respectful that um, if there is people there that are not those things that mm -hmm. you are asking them to leave that you're the ultimate patient advocate mm -hmm. and um, and that you're assessing not only the client physically and medically, but also the environment and the people around them. Mm -hmm. um, and you're altering that environment as needed to best facilitate mm -hmm. the, the individual's needs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have examples of, you know, a woman who received a not care, not great care that was triggering and maybe an example of ways that you do um, hold that sensitive birth space and if you see, if you see like outcomes being different or oh, like uh, what what does it what does it do um so maybe two stories there yeah I guess uh, as a labor nurse a labor and delivery nurse before I was a midwife I I oftentimes saw you know I labored with these these women for 12 hour shifts and um like I was saying, created that safe space for them. And as soon as it was time to push, you know, who, whoever the provider was that came in, I mean, that could be completely disrupted. Um, and what was really calm and peaceful and safe has now become really hostile with yelling and aggressive um, demands and kind of taking away the client's choices. Like if she wanted to be on hands and knees, now the provider is coming in and telling them, telling her that that's not an option, that she needs to be on her back and in the stirrups. And um, that was really hard for me because it felt really powerless as a, as a nurse to mm -hmm. not really be able to um, challenge the physicians or other providers that I was seeing this behavior from. And, and I, I mean, I've seen, um, labors progressing normally and as soon as a provider that maybe a client has shared with me that they're they don't trust or maybe a family member who is against this client's birth wishes comes you know labor will stall or stop and um and I don't think that that's a coincidence I think when you have cortisol 
hormone releases from stress that counters oxytocin that your labor can stall and that can lead to a slew of other interventions and issues if you're not really understanding what's causing the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw a lot of unnecessary cesarean births um, as a labor nurse, and I saw a lot of um, really traumatic second stages mm-hmm. that didn't need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a provider now and as a student midwife, I saw really healing births. Um, so I saw clients who came to midwives because of really traumatic first births, and now they're having a completely different experience with their new provider who is listening to them, who is, when the client says no, they're, you know, accepting, the providers are accepting that answer. Um, they're not fighting. They're really giving, it's a, I think the biggest thing, it's like a balance of power. Um, good midwives don't think that they have more power than their clients. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you mean by that? I think the traditional medical model of care is that physicians know everything or like know more than you and therefore are right in all situations mm-hmm. and all you being the client. No, like the provider, like a physician, or traditionally I'm saying physician Mm -hmm. just because that's a medical model of care. There are Mm -hmm. midwives, of course, that also subscribe to the medical model of care, but um, I think traditionally the medical model of care is that it is very patriarchal in the sense that the the provider knows best, Mm -hmm. no matter what. Um, Whereas the where my midwifery model of care, at least, is that I cannot possibly know what is best for this individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, I know what the guidelines say, I know what research says, I know what safety issues are, and I can explain that all to my client and then let them make the best decision for themselves and their family, because I can't possibly know their life. Mm-hmm. And um, no individual wants something terrible to happen to their child. And that's what I've learned, um, that if I'm presenting all the information, no individual is gonna make a truly unsafe, reckless decision with their child's life. Um, So assuming that, knowing that our clients are, you know, rational human beings, that um, allows me to present all the information and truly let them, and I think that's what informed consent is, right? You present all of the information mm-hmm. and you let the client decide what's best. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. that does not line up with what we think is best mm-hmm. and we might disagree, um, but as long as we're respecting that client's autonomy and we're, you know, she truly understands all of the information, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what mm-hmm. right am I to say that something is better for someone else? So I think that's what what it comes down to, like equalizing that power mm-hmm. balance that um, I might have more knowledge on a certain thing, but I don't know her as an individual and mm-hmm. what, she, what her life experiences are, what her knowledge base is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really and good I think perspective. That, that brings us back to that first question about feminism and midwifery. Like that is the act of feminism within midwifery. Right. The, the deconstruction of power over mm-hmm. and to be with and together and right it's a collaboration exactly just like midwives should collaborate with physicians and we should look at our relationship with our clients as a collaboration mm-hmm. we're both 
we're both here for the same goal, which is providing safety and um, and it should it should be a teamwork thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you? You're our first CNM that we've interviewed. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell us about hospital birth. I mean, that's a big, <laughs> big question. But what does it look like for you in in your practice? Or, you know, you're doing prenatal care, and when are the women coming in? And how how is there how are they held in this space that's women centered? And... Yeah, uh, I feel really fortunate because the group that I joined has a long um, standing. Uh, I guess, reputation for really excellent birth outcomes and really mm-hmm. great midwifery care. Um, and we work at a facility mm-hmm. that the nurses are really familiar with midwives mm-hmm. and are also really supportive of that model of care. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, What's this group called that you work for? My practice, practice is called um, OMG Women's Health. We're mm-hmm. a part of the Amita Medical Health Group, mm-hmm. uh, or me- medical group, and we um, deliver out of Hinsdale, Adventist Hinsdale Hospital. And, um, yeah, so uh, there's five midwives in my group, and we do a shared call, so we, we share that call um, evenly, uh, split it five ways, and then we also have a physician in our group who's amazing and really awesome and patient with our clients and practices really evidence-based medicine, and so that gives us the opportunity to have a lot more autonomy as midwives and... Um, to give our care, like our clients, true midwifery care, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have three tub rooms at our hospital. Yeah. And so clients are able to have water births if they like. We have um, birthing balls and peanut balls and um, really supportive nursing staff who understand patient autonomy and informed choice and consent and all of that. Um, and so I feel really fortunate that the environment makes my job a lot easier because I'm not, I don't feel like I'm fighting mm-hmm. um, every area of the system. Of course, there's going to be some hiccups and, mm-hmm. you know, certain people or individuals that you come across that are not as supportive of, of the midwifery model of care. But overall, um, I feel like it is pretty easy for me to create that safe space at the hospital for my clients. And I've worked in home birth and birth centers, and um, I do appreciate all of those uh, birth settings. I I have a strong um, belief that home birth is just as safe as hospital birth, and that if a woman chooses to have a birth outside of the hospital, she should be supportive in that as long as she is um, appropriately risked. in your experience, what are the key differences between those three birth spaces that we have available to us? Um, well, I think there it's three unique settings that are all for different individuals. So uh, home birth is a great option for low-risk women who feel like they are more afraid to be in the hospital. So uh, I think it's wherever you feel safe. So if a woman feels like she's low risk, but she's scared of having a baby at home, then a home birth is not the right option for her, right? Um, So it's really just individualized. I think home birth and birth center settings have amazing outcomes, um, and the majority of women are low risk, and 
should have those options available to to them more readily than they are right now. Um, they should be everywhere, and it should be as convenient as a hospital. But we even have areas in our country where uh, OB unit at a hospital is not a, a guaranteed thing. Some women have to travel two hours to get to a maternity center hospital even. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a crisis in our country of, of limited options for birth. Um, but I don't know if that really answers your question, <laughs> sorry, but um, I, I think each setting is different in the sense that like, I mean, home is great. It's your own space. It's your, it's so personal and intimate and your midwife comes to you and there's just something really, in my perspective, all of the births that I saw at home were really beautiful and um, very intimate. And, and if that feels safe to you and you're low risk, then that's totally appropriate like should be appropriate option. Mm -hmm. um, birth center, same thing. It's that nice in-between for, for people who don't feel completely comfortable with delivering at home, but um, don't want to be in that full medical arena of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then the hospital is just an, an incredible option for women who need an OR that's, you know, 20 meters away from their room. So if they're, you know, have a lot of complications, um, they're where they need to be to have the best medical care possible. Mm -hmm. And um, the benefit of having a midwifery practice at a hospital is that if you are low risk, you still get that personal, individualized, low intervention care just in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have midwife to midwife transfers, like home birth midwives to your practice? Yeah, we work, in patients. we work really closely with a home birth practice, a uh, uh, certified nurse midwife practice oh, okay. and called Gentle Birth Care, who we love, and mm -hmm. we refer a lot of our clients who are seeking home birth to them. Mm -hmm. um, and our physician is the um, supervising physician for the home birth practice, so mm -hmm. the transfers are pretty seamless. If they're coming to us for, um, you know, whether it's preeclampsia or a breech baby or... Um, the need for a cesarean birth during labor for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we try, we take those clients into our care. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that you mentioned earlier, um, we talked a little bit about language and how language can support and empower birth spaces or empower women in birth spaces. What are some ways that you use language really consciously, um, mm -hmm. to not, you know, bring fear into, you know, the, the, the advice or perspective that you have as a midwife. So language is something that I'm constantly working on myself. It's really hard to change the words that we use, but it's really important that we do because, uh, language impacts us on a really, um, powerful subconscious level. And, you can be really inclusive with your language or you can be really aggressive with your language. And, um, and traditionally there's a lot of birth terminology that is really linked to like violent words. So some examples you, you often will hear if you hang out on a labor and delivery unit, mm -hmm. you'll hear phrases like she's going to get cut or um, let's move her to the OR to cut her. And, I mean, obviously, they're talking about cesarean birth, mm -hmm. which should be called that, cesarean birth. It's a birth. It's not a, I mean, cut is a really 
you know, that's something that's happening to her body rather than her being a participant in that, in that experience. And so, um, other examples that are, they're really simple to change or theoretically, (laughs) but they're so embedded in our culture and our society that it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, so again, this is really good stuff on, on Stephanie Tillman's Feminist Midwife blog. She mm-hmm. talks a lot about language, and I definitely encourage anyone that's listening to about look it, at her. The more you talk about it, I'm remembering it. I, I haven't seen her blog before, but I do follow her on Instagram. Yeah. And so I like see, I see her face. She's such an inspiring but, human. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I owe a lot of like my knowledge to the things that she's written, and mm-hmm. um, I really appreciate her contributions to healthcare in general, but, mm-hmm. um, some other examples would be, uh, of language be like rupture of membranes, rupture mm-hmm. or like break. Those are both like kind of violent, um, terminology where you could simply just say release of the waters or, um, passing of fluid, um, things like that, that are more, um, neutral, mm-hmm. I guess, and not so aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, like inclusivity as far as when it comes to um, being aware that this, that we are, I guess, what's the right, see, I'm trying to use (laughs) appropriate (laughs) language, Um, uh, gender inclusivity. So making sure that you're not assuming that everyone identifies with how they appear or the sex that they were assigned at birth, Mm -hmm. Um, assuming, not assuming everyone's sexual orientation that walks in through the door, um, not assuming um, that um, that even if someone identifies, uh, so I had a client recently who sh- she identifies as a female, um, but she is getting she is more masculine appearing, and she um, is trying to get pregnant, and she also is gonna. She already shared with me that she's gonna be. F- kind of dealing with some body dysmorphia. So even though she identifies as a female um, and can get pregnant and will be pregnant, the idea of carrying or having a a gravid uterus is going to cause a lot of body dysphoria for her. So I mean, no body dysphoria. Body dysphoria is when you're, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be explaining this totally appropriate. So again, essentially um, it's when you struggle with the biological parts of your body that don't align with how you identify. So if you identify as a male, um, breasts, growing breasts can be really um, a cause of stress and discomfort and not feeling like feeling like you're trapped in a body that doesn't belong to you Mm -hmm. or isn't what you identify as. Mm -hmm. Um, And so pregnancy, especially for trans um, men and um, like this individual client who's more masculine appearing, even though she identifies as a female, can be really um, stressful and um, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then you have to deal with the stigma of society. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from too, is you know, they are appearing masculine to the world, but now they're carrying a very fe- female-identified um, body experience of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. The world is not kind at all or inclusive and um, they can uh, become a target of more violence or um, 
aggression than they typically, I mean, they already are more at risk for a, a violence against them. And then mm -hmm. in that kind of situation, it can heighten things. Mm -hmm. um, so just kind of being aware of that as a provider and mm -hmm. making sure that when you're doing health histories and stuff that you're using the appropriate language, that you're asking clients what pronouns they prefer to be used at, um, used for them. So even including on like health history forms, like do identify, like ask, like including those kind of um, inclusive questions um, ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some examples. Um, just like chest feeding is a really simple, uh, different language instead of breastfeeding for someone who chooses to um, uh, chest feed their child but doesn't identify as having breasts. Um, mm -hmm. That's a really neutral language that can feel really inclusive to someone who doesn't want to hear over and over again that they have breasts. Um, so just kind of being aware. Actually, mm -hmm. um, the American College of Nurse Midwives just put out a whole um, uh, article on gender inclusive terminology. Mm. Maybe we'll link that in the show notes. That'd be great. It's yeah. really a great resource. You say ACNM, the ACNM. American College of Nurse Midwives. Okay. I'll look that up and include that because that sounds that sounds really interesting to to figure out, you know, what are ways that mm -hmm. you know better care can be provided right. for all. And it's people. as simple, I think, as asking um, your clients. You know, being uh, and then if you don't know something, just being uh, able to admit that to your patient population, and mm -hmm. um, and then if you don't know it that you're researching and you're trying to learn more and that you're always kind of, it shouldn't be the job of your clients to educate you mm -hmm. on certain things. And so, um, but if you don't know it, you should be honest and transparent and then um, make steps to kind of filling in the gaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I'll end today on this last question, um, which is what's a moment in birth or a birth you've witnessed that's been really inspiring? Hmm. They're all so inspiring. Um, a moment in birth that's been inspiring. Mm -hmm. Birth work. Birth work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the best um, phrase that I've I hear over and over again um, in birth that just like makes me beam is when the baby is out and on mom's abdomen and she just says, I did it. I did it. Oh my gosh, I did it. And she just, all she can say is that she did it. And that's like amazing to me because she's realizing that she's did it. No one else did it. That's why the midwife doesn't deliver the baby. We, we catch the baby sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, that's another terminology that we, because women do this, or birthing individuals do this. They're the ones that are um, incredible and awesome, and I'm just always inspired by them, and it's so cool to see them make that connection as soon as the baby's out, that mm -hmm. they realize that no one else did this but them, and, um, and we're just here along for the ride, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. Any last thoughts or comments that you want to share mm. this podcast and all of our listeners out there? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I just really hope that um, you guys are ha you'll have an opportunity to talk to uh, some midwives of color, um, midwives in the LGBT community, um, midwives who are primarily serving low socioeconomic status areas, because those are all experiences that I cannot, um, you know, connect with or speak to, I guess. And those are the people that really need to be getting interviewed. Those are the midwives that are going to have the most profound things to contribute. And I think that new midwives or midwifery students, doulas, whoever's going to be listening to this podcast could really benefit from um, having more of those voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I that's taken in and taken to heart. That's something that we really value and want to focus our attention and effort on as okay. we put the podcast together cool. even more. <laughs> so thank you so much no for problem. talking today. And Thanks it for was really me. great to get to know you more. Awesome. <laughs> Have a great one. Thanks so much for listening today. If you're enjoying our show, please like us on Facebook, follow us on iTunes, or send us any questions and comments you have. Um, to our email at themidwifepodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time.